You are listening to Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour, a podcast released on the first three Wednesdays of the month. Family crisis, relationship crisis, addiction crisis, no two crisis situations are the same. They vary by family, individual, and relationship. They can encompass complex family dynamics, emotional distress, anger issues, and entitlements, and often involve substance abuse. This podcast addresses these issues and others surrounding the addiction epidemic currently plaguing this country and the world. There is hope and help. Are you stuck, scared, or unsure of what to do next? If a situation with a loved one, spouse, or even a child has started to spiral, possibly becoming dangerous or threatening, it's time to seek help. My name is Scott H. Silverman. I help families navigate crisis situations. I'm the person you turn to in order to get you and your loved ones unstuck. Thank you for joining us. This is Michael Glenn Moore. I'm Scott's co-host. Scott, what are we talking about today? Well, hey, Michael, it's uh, nice to talk with you. Today, we're going to talk about addiction being a family disease. And when you think about addiction and you think about the family, the question always comes up, well, wait, why does the family have the disease? Well, it's because it's a family disease, and that's what science tells us. Before we get into it, though, I just want to uh, welcome everybody and really encourage you to uh, let us know what you think about what you're hearing, uh, probably more importantly, what you're not hearing from us topic-wise. What do you want us to talk about? What's important to you and your family? What's going on in your community? You know, this is a, we like to believe we have a national presence we're trying to bring to the table and things that are going on in Southern California where I'm at uh, might be different than what's happening in the Northwest, Northeast and middle of America and the Southeast as well. So, and if you happen to be hearing this and you're, you know, uh, in another part of the world, please communicate with us. Uh, my name again is Scott H. Silverman. You can Google me that way. And I want to put out my phone number because I really encourage people to call or text me. It's area code 619. 619- Nine nine three two seven three eight, and our program is uh, sponsored pretty much by Michael and I. Working, you know, a grassroots bootstraps uh, programmatic piece, uh, the confidential recovery, which is an outpatient program here in San Diego, is a big part of what I do, and also yourcrisiscoach.com, yourcrisiscoach.com. My number again six one nine 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 three two seven three eight. I'm putting everything out front here because some of you might turn this on and think, oh, that's important. I'm going to listen to it later and then forget. But do write down the phone number. Do email us, see us on social media, and let us know if anything that we're sharing resonates with you and how we might be a resource to you and your loved ones. Okay, Michael, take it away. You've got the first question, and I'm going to do what I can to give you the best answers I can. Okay, I just wanted to ask that how can parents take action with their children regarding drug and alcohol abuse? Well, one thing, and I'm sorry, I should spend a second on or a minute or two on what the family disease really means. In, in the science around addiction, what happens is there's an individual in the family who probably is pre-wired, predisposed, kind of like someone who has diabetes. And then what happens is when their behavior starts to erupt, other members of the family either shut down, deny it's happening, fight with the individual, try to control their behavior, react to it, you know, in an, sometimes in an appropriate way, sometimes in an inappropriate way. So that's why it's considered a family disease because the entire family is impacted by the individual who suffers from the disease itself. 
and that you've heard the word codependency, you've heard the word enabling. Those are all terms that are relevant to the person who doesn't necessarily have the issue specifically, but is embedded with that family member or that close uh, coworker, colleague, or a parent or a child or a sibling. And they have to find ways to balance what they do and how they do it to support that individual. So the question, uh, I'm sorry, go, go shoot that question out again, Michael. I want to make sure I get it right. Yeah, I just want to know what action should parents take with their children regarding drug and alcohol abuse? Uh, where do they begin? Well, when a parent first sees a change in their child, and I'm not talking about, you know, the physical change or the emotional change, but behaviorally, uh, you know, you've got a 12, 14, 15, 16-year-old, and all of a sudden, you know, they've, they've got a, a successful uh, behavior pattern of good school habits. Uh, they come back with good grades. Their attendance is consistent. You know, they sit down at dinner. Their eyes are open, and they're interacting with you. If you see patterns change, grades start to slip. Kids making excuses about school, not feeling well. You know, technically, if somebody has a fever, a child, you're going to, you know, feel their neck or head or take a thermometer and verify whether they have a fever or not. If they have a fever and it doesn't go away, you're going to take them to the doctor. So I encourage families to make the same observations when a behavior shifts and you talk with your child. But what's important is when you're talking with your child, when they go to respond, this is hard for parents. You have to stop talking. Try to listen carefully. Make sure that when their lips are starting to share something with you, that you're listening with both of your ears. And the reason you want to be doing that is you may hear something that you're not seeing. And that's the trigger to say, okay, we need to move this agenda along a little bit further, a little bit faster, and find out what's going on by doing a deeper dive. The idea of don't do that, the idea of you better not be doing that, the idea of saying you shouldn't do that, those are the kind of trigger words that, in my opinion, and it happened to me personally growing up, were trigger words for me to hide what I was doing even more. So for the family, it's to really notice the change. Are they gaining weight, losing weight, sleep patterns, school patterns, relationships with the family, within the family? They have a group of friends. Friends shift. You know, if they're in sports and their buddies are sports people. And then all of a sudden, you know, different kinds of people are coming around the house and, you know, you don't know who they are and your child's not introducing you to them because they want to kind of keep that, you know, clandestine relationship going. I mean, I heard a story just recently here with a, a young person who they were all meeting at the mall and it turns out at the mall itself, the security people were getting uh, some of the uh, substances shared with them. So security was, tur was turning a blind eye. And all of a sudden there's, you know, a bunch of kids, I don't know, dozens, maybe, maybe close to a hundred who was using the mall, you know, the shopping mall to spend their time during the day, because that's usually a place that's considered safe. And, you know, they have cameras, they have security, you know, there's a retail environment, there's a food court, there's a movie theater in many cases, and the kids are going and congregating there and they're, you know, they're smoking dope, they're sharing each other's, uh, you know, uh, whatever the medication might be, I call it self-medicating, and they're vaping and they're doing it in an environment where, you know, it, it's perceived as safe. And it is a safe environment, but kids are congregating there. Those who are using and abusing during the day. And, you know, sometimes they start as a casual experimentation, but sometimes they explore other things as well. And, you know, it's a, it's a feeding ground right now. And I don't know, you know, if you're seeing that in your community, you know, it used to be the playground. And then it used to be, you know, kids' garages. And 
than it used to be apartment complexes and the community rooms or the parking lots or, you know, take an Uber to a special place. So I think as parents, we just have to really heighten our awareness and just make sure that your, your children are informed as best as they can be. So when they're making decisions out there, it's an informed decision. It's, you know, obviously it's important for parents to open a dialogue with their children and in discussing alcohol and drug abuse and the pitfalls that it, it uh, brings up. What, at what age do you think that conversation should begin? I don't, I don't think there's a, you know, according to the, the federal, I don't know who, who in the, I don't know, the people who study these things, they say that from zero to three is when kids get their first impressions their, and their most lasting, you know, foundation for thinking. And I think that whenever a parent feels comfortable enough to be able to start a conversation, they should start it. And most families, you know, there's other siblings to be considered as well. So, for example, if you have a 14-year-old who you're, you're dealing with and they have a 9-year-old sibling and maybe a 4-year-old sibling, you have to understand that the 9-year-old and the 4-year-old, are they want to be like the 14-year-old. So when you're talking to a 14-year-old, keep in mind that, you know, whatever is going on, the other children are seeing the same thing. I mean, we had a very sad incident that I just heard about a few months ago where a young person was watching their older brother, you know, those parties we've talked about, you and I, Michael, on our podcast in the past, where people bring their own medication, pills, you know, drugs, whatever you want to call it, and they put them in a a bowl, and at a certain time, everybody goes to the bowl and grabs something and, you know, consumes it. So, you know, you never know what you're getting when you're doing things like that. But there was a kid in the house when the parents were gone and the kid wanted to do what his brother did. So the next day he found something on the floor, thought it'd be cool. He took it and he overdosed and passed away. So when we talk about children, I mean, I I don't ever want to say to somebody, you know, oh, don't start until they're a certain age, because I think kids are so much smarter today than we've ever seen before. And with the information highway, with the Internet. They're, they've got information coming at them. And I'll, but I'm not suggesting you sit down with a five-year-old and go, okay, let's talk about IV drug abuse and the opioid crisis. That's not what I'm suggesting. But if you're listening to your children at the table and you're spending time talking to them and they've got their phones down and you've got your phone down and you're, you know, both your ears are open and your mouth is closed to listen, they'll start telling you and you'll kind of know what level of information you could and should be sharing. And if you're not sure, you know, call us, 619 nine nine three two seven three eight and you know i i don't have a magic wand i wish i did to say when where and how but i do know that don't be afraid to have a conversation that makes sense and don't be afraid to inform your children it's important communication with kids is not you know being a nag you shouldn't just be nagging your children i guess about drug and alcohol abuse they say this is the main addition uh main reason children don't listen the more routines you have, the less you have to be a drill sergeant. Uh, what kind of routine should parents incorporate? Well, I think most parents, when it comes to talking to their children about sensitive issues, are pretty much doing what it is that they learned how to do. And I think that when we talk to our children today, some of the things that, you know, for example, I'll use me as an example. The, the things that I learned from my parents when I shared them with my children, you know, because that's what I knew. And until you run into something that you've never seen before, or if you run into something you've never seen before, you know, you, you can go online and you can Google what should a parent say to a child 
if they if they appear to be under the influence of something mood altering. There is a plethora of information out there. My suggestion is again that you come from the heart. You speak with your children about you being scared and not and not to judge them and not for them. I call it the shame based finger with that, you know, your index finger shaking in their face going, if you ever do this again, your father and I or your mother and I, we're going to take the appropriate action and you'll never leave this house again. That kind of thing, unfortunately, doesn't really, you know, resonate well with the child. So what I suggest is you you listen as best you can and maybe not respond immediately. Listen to what it is you're hearing and then talk about it with somebody close to you, someone you trust, or call us, you know, or email us. And if we can give you a suggestion, we're happy to do it. If there was one easy answer for all of this, my sense would be we wouldn't have the kind of epidemic that we currently have today. Yeah, that would be ideal that we're able to have that conversation with our children before anything starts with them. During the, the holidays, uh, first-time drug use among teens is at its highest. Survey results from Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration uh, have revealed startling statistics that every, every parent should know. What are some of these statistics? Well, the, the, the holiday times are generally um, the times when most young people have, you know, non-structured hours. You know, they're, they're not in school per se, or they might be working maybe part-time, but it's generally a different period of time. There's less of a structure, and, you know, parents don't necessarily see the children, you know, the same way, the same time when the vacation comes up or the summer comes up, and I think we have spring vacation in front of us very soon, and then, of course, the time's going to change and it'll get darker later. So I think what's really important, again, is, you know, why, by having these conversations and by having a child who's informed or a child who's at least willing to listen and to, to, for you to listen to them and to talk about, you know, information, the information highway, because they're hearing this kind of news every day. They're hearing what you and I are hearing. I mean, they might be hearing it through Instagram. They might be watching it on TV. They might be seeing it through a show. I think it was uh, one of the reality shows recently just talked about an opioid crisis with one of their guests on a show or something. So anything that people are watching today, because that's what television does. That's what uh, social media does. It talks about whatever's going on in a contemporary way. So having that kind of conversation as best you can with your children and, you know, and I hear it all the time, parents, well, you know, when I was your age, when I was in the summertime, I worked all the time. You know, well, okay, well, that may not mean any of somebody today, but, you know, and when parents try to empathize with their children and say, well, you know, we smoked pot when we were kids. Marijuana 25 years ago, you know, was 25 times less potent than it is today. So what I really encourage the parents to do is when you're going to see a schedule change or you're going to be on vacation or you're going away for a weekend as the parents that, you know, you check in with your kids and talk about a plan. You know, what's, uh, what's the spring break look like? What would you like to do? How can I support you? I know it sounds a little strange, but we're in some strange times. And, you know, experimentation in today's world, you know, we're seeing people expire. People go to parties, they take a pill that's cut with opioids and fentanyl, and they overdose. So it's not like you want to say to yourself, it's not going to happen to my kid. And that's what kids say to themselves. This won't happen to me. This won't happen to me. And parents do the same thing. I mean, right now, 200 plus people are dying every day in our country, every day behind opioids, prescription medication, illicit drugs, 
And that just didn't happen overnight. This has taken years to develop overnight with people with the dependency upon, you know, mood altering substances and people self-medicating because they're not sure how to deal with things or just accidentally taking medication that's put out in front of them because a friend of theirs says, hey, don't worry, it's just a Xanax, you know, but it might be counterfeit medication. So that's where informing your child, being present as a parent and taking an active role in making sure you're having these kind of conversations, you know, before the weekend and then maybe even doing a little debrief after the weekend. So that's my thought on that part. Uh, you mentioned earlier that some of the warning signs that your teen may be using alcohol or drugs is their withdrawal from the family, not, you know, wanting to join the family for dinner and being quiet and kind of going into themselves. What should a parent do when they first notice that? And, and do you think that some type of therapy should be the first route or is that something that is a last ditch effort? Anytime a person sees another person changing, whether they're getting sad or they're angry uh, and, you know, and some kids get quiet, some kids get noisier, some get belligerent, some you can see their behavior shifts, some you go, you walk into their room and, you know, all of a sudden they're shuffling things around to hide it. And, you know, the backpack you used to see on the kitchen table no longer appears on the kitchen table because now they're preparing for school in a different way. So I, I think it's important to sense what's going on as best you can and then convey what you're seeing. Talk to your significant other, talk to your sibling, talk to a you know, healthcare professional. And based on what you're telling them, if they have, if a question's come up that you cannot answer and there's a behavior there that really concerns you, taking them to their primary doctor, for example, to just to start there and then maybe have a little heads up conversation with the doctor before the kid gets there to go, can we kind of explore you know, what I think might be going on in the conversation as a medical professional, you know, there might be something you can help us do. And there's also the faith-based leaders, you know, who can be a, uh, you know, confidant, sometimes having that third party in the conversation, either directly with you as a parent, or sometimes having the child sit with somebody who really understands the family dynamic, uh, whether it's a licensed psychologist or a clinical expert or a psychiatrist, and there's lots of professionals out there. There's crisis hotlines now all over the place where a parent can actually call and describe what's going on. And hopefully you're going to be talking to a, a seasoned professional at the other end of the line who might be able to give you a more, you know, timely topical response to what's happening in real time right now in your home or with your family or somebody, you know, who just made a phone call and reached out that they can, crisis hotlines again are all over the place and, you know, be behind behavioral health, mental health substance abuse, you know, hotlines. I think the, the government's put together an opioid hotline. And I know there's all kinds of anonymous programs that have their own 800 numbers, or local numbers you can call, and they'll point you in the right direction. So at least you can get somebody local that hopefully you're, you know, if your child needs to see somebody. Um, and I would certainly encourage people to do it. Don't be afraid of asking for help. It's one of the toughest things to do. Yeah. the One of the best things about internet these days is that uh, information is at the touch of your fingers. You know, if you're looking for a way to find therapy or to find a helpline, all you have to do is Google it and up will come several websites for your state or close by to you, maybe not in your city, but close by to you where you can find therapists, 100 numbers and, and so forth. 
Uh, Scott, what, what else should we talk about with this subject? I, I think the subject itself is a hard one. You know, I think when you talk about talking about the subject, you know, first of all, with the stigma behind this, and because once it's kind of like, you know, when you hear um, example would be um, when we see these things with these high level, high profile groups, sports figures, the music industry, the, you know, the, the, the movie industry, and, and you hear, oh, so-and-so is, you know, contract was completely terminated because they were, you know, caught under the influence of cocaine or they tested positive for marijuana or, you know, they were under the influence and behind the wheel of a car crashed and not only injured themselves, but others. When you raise your hand and you say, you know, our, our association, our group, my family member, doesn't matter who you are, has a problem with substance abuse. It's embarrassing. It's, it's shameful. It's uh, stigmatized in a way where you feel less than, and, and especially as a parent, look, when you say to yourself, how is it my child went from this, you know, loving, kind, play in the backyard, climb on the ropes, get good grades, you know, make their bed, learn to cook, plays the piano, plays the violin, excellent, you know, in competition at school, you know, has a great GPA, gets their homework done. How is it possible this individual has cocaine in their backpack, methamphetamine, and they've got some Oxycontin, they've got some, you know, counterfeit Xanax, and they're eating edibles. How did that happen? And I can't tell you how often I hear that. And, and from parents who believe, you know, they're, they're dropping their kids off at school, they're picking their kids up, and they're, when they discover this, and usually what happens is they get in trouble at school. And hopefully they're in a school, you know, where there's a level of, you know, educators and principals and leadership that's, that's willing to take the time, pull the child in the office, call the family up, get them down and have a meeting. And when that takes place, that the parents, not only the parents' eyes get open, but the school starts to realize, oh my, you know, if we, if we caught one like this, this easy, how many are out there doing it that we can't see because we don't have enough staff to supervise that kind of behavior. So it's a learning curve right now for families, especially with young children. And when you hear these stories, and they're everywhere in the country, you know, it's not like it's in this zip code or that zip code. It doesn't matter, you know, how affluent or not the community is. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It doesn't matter if it's a private or a public school. The morbidity rate with our young people across this country, they have no boundaries. They have no boundaries. And, you know, what's happened in our country the last 20 years We've put a lot of children on, you know, ADHD medication, on behavioral adjustment medication, uh, behavioral calming medication, anxiety medication, dep uh, depression medication, lack of sleep medication. And that's kind of been the clinical trend, the medical trend to help children who have, you know, behavior problems or learning disabilities. And I say all that not to judge anybody because I was one of those kids that had all those issues. I didn't get medication as a child because back in my day, you know, when I was younger, they, you know, they didn't really have a clean, clear diagnosis yet for that. I mean, if you were extremely inappropriate, they would institutionalize you. And I say that because if a child is on some prescription medication currently, and I think it's 25% of the country's youth right now is on some form of prescribed medication for some issue. And I'm not talking about you know, allergies, I'm talking about, you know, behavioral issues or learning 
disabilities of some sort, and they're enhanced with medication. Adderall is one of the big ones people talk about. When they mix illicit substances with prescribed medication, it causes reactions that can be deadly. And that's part of where I'm talking about the informed base. You know, how do we do that? What do we need to do? So I don't know if that answers your question directly or if I've leaned on that, but that's, I keep coming back to, there's so much that we don't know right now. And so much of this is uh, opaque and the, the stigma around talking about it. Still, you know, even you see these movie stars, Jamie Lee Curtis just came out on the cover of this, you know, Elton John talked about it. You know, Robert Downey Jr. was in, you know, uh, prison around his cocaine use. I thought one of his phrases was, every time I used cocaine, I broke out in handcuffs. You know, it's, uh, it's just, it, it's impacted so much of our world right now. And I just, it scares me to think that we're not smarter than we were. But on the other hand, you know, when you're in a tsunami, making good, sound, logical decisions and good, effective planning may only work for a short period of time because you have to make adjustments. And then when you, if you become that disciplinary and tough parent, you know, you're going to drive your kids to camouflage their behavior even more. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it rarely gets better on its own. You often hear of gateway drugs or the gateway to drugs being alcohol, then progressing to marijuana, and then possibly going to something stronger. How much of this is actually fact? The science and the studies show that there are gateway drugs, but there's also studies out there that show in state there aren't really, they're not really gateway drugs. But I've, you know, I've never met anybody who went from zero to heroin or cocaine. Most people started with, you know, experimenting with alcohol because, you know, it's in our home, it's legal, it's everywhere. People see it, it's advertised on TV, it's at all the sporting events and every, you know, convenience store you go into has alcohol. And as we're starting to see marijuana legalized now and distributed in, you know, in a retail environment in many states, and they're talking about making it a national legal drug, we're going to see more of what I call, you know, the excuse syndrome where kids go, well, gee whiz, it's legal. But historically, I believe, and when you talk to the experts who are the ones who arrest people, who are the ones who are confronted with the, you know, the crisis prior to an episode, they'll tell you that everyone they've ever, ever interviewed has said they started with marijuana. They started with alcohol. Then they graduated to methamphetamine or cocaine. And then from there, they potentially went on to heroin. Right now, for example, the recent studies last couple of years have shown that something like 70% of heroin users started with prescription opioids. 70% of heroin users started with prescription opioids. Now, is Oxycontin a gateway drug to heroin? Well, if 70% of the users started with that and then went to that, can you call that a gateway drug? Probably. Will science say that? Don't know. But if you think about it, that's a very interesting outcome from people who you know, had an injury, suffered from something, and then got this medication. And then when the prescription ran out, the doctor wouldn't renew or the issue was resolved. They're still, if they were predisposed, they were addicted. So they went to the streets to get heroin. Well, that's a, a good place for us to stop there. I'd like to invite our listeners to help us out and go to Apple Podcast, 
scroll to the bottom of the page of Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour and rate or review or both the podcast. Uh, that's one way that uh, our listeners can really help us out. If the rating system on Apple Podcasts is such that once you reach a certain amount of reviews and ratings, you are into in their algorithms for, for the search engine. So that, that way people can find us more easily. Right now, in order to find us, you have to type in Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour. So you need to know about the podcast before you even start searching for it. If uh, we can get the ratings up to 50, we are in the search engine so that when people enter addiction or education and so forth, will pop up and people can have a chance to listen to this. And I think it's important that more and more people listen to this podcast because what Scott has been saying is so important and really helps out. Uh, It's almost like therapy. Uh, Scott, is there, do you have any final words or maybe a Scott's positive affirmation for the week? Well, I want to echo what, what Michael said, and, and you, know, the, you know, we love to get our numbers up, but the reason for the increased lead, uh, listenership is more people hear this, more people get educated, more people are informed, and maybe just maybe we can save some lives. And that's really what the bottom line is here right now, is to how to get this information in people's heads, into their hearts, so they can make informed decisions about what they're going to do uh, as they go about their day. Because as we as we go and grow as a community, you know, the catastrophic events aren't going to slow down. I mean, we're big in this, you know, we're watching this coronavirus right now and it's epidemic and it's affecting us from an economic perspective. And I'm not going to make any political announcements. I don't think it's necessary. What I want to do is I want to reduce the morbidity rate. That means I don't want to go to any more funerals. So as Michael said, you know, give us a listen, share the information, give us a rating. And if you hear something, share the link with friends and family and loved ones. And, you know, have them call us. You know, they can always call me, 619-993-2738. So I think maybe to leave you with a thought, you know, to live, to live life and to love others, you know, and to give of oneself and to do more listening and be who you are and follow your heart.